This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, family lawyers Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink from the Zuckerman Law Group will return to our show to take your calls and talk about family law issues and why January is so busy for their branch of the law. In our second hour today, longtime Globe and Mail automotive journalist Jeremy Cato will be here to take your calls and talk about cars, new and old, gas and electric, the whole bit. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Can Canada's chief public health officer says more children are being hospitalized this flu season because of an early spike in a strain of influenza B, which hits young people hard. Dr. Teresa Tam says that strain is circulating across the country, while a strain of influenza A, which typically targets the elderly, is also making the rounds. She says influenza B does not usually peak until February or later, and the double dose of both strains has not been seen here in Canada in a few years. Dr. Tam says she doesn't know yet if either strain is linked to the deaths of two young people in Manitoba, but she does say the best defense is getting the flu shot. But notes, only about 43% of people under the age of 65 got one last year. She recommends you rethink your strategy. Oh, and here's a story with local implications as we watch dozens of thrill seekers get rescued and bailed out of near-death situations every year here by crews like the North Shore Rescue Team. Well, Parks Canada has implemented new rules for climbers on Canada's highest mountain after having to rescue eight people in seven years, just a few less than North Van, wouldn't you say? The rules, which are posted on the agency's website, include no more solo climbing on Mount Logan in Yukon. Climbers are also required to have insurance to cover any search and rescue costs for all expeditions in the ice field ranges of Kluane National Park before they get a permit. The director of visitor experience with Parks Canada says they want to improve safety for people visiting the park as well as their rescue teams and says they're hoping to reduce the burden on taxpayers who end up picking up the cost of these rescues. They say there have been eight rescue missions in Kluane National Park in the last seven years. Each one costs somewhere between 60 and 100 grand. I suspect our tab here in Metro Vancouver's Outback is probably much higher than 100,000 bucks every year and the debate as to who should pay for all of this stuff is still very much alive. Canada Mortgage and Housing says rental apartment vacancy rates last year hit their lowest level since 2002 after a third consecutive year of declines. The Federal Housing Agency says the national vacancy rent for purpose-built apartments was 2.2%, down a couple of points for uh, from 2018 the vacancy rate in condo rentals was at one percent vancouver's dedicated rental vacancy rate was 1.1 percent toronto montreal 1.5 vacancy rates for condos 0.3 percent here in vancouver less than one percent 0.8 in toronto as well prairie cities well it's very different on the prairies these days uh, uh, rental uh, rates in regina you, you have choices you can go to the paper and pick it's a 7.8 percent vacancy rate right now calgary almost four percent winnipeg three percent nationally average rents increased by almost four percent for a two-bedroom apartment as availability tightened the fight 
fastest pace of same sample rent growth since 2001. Uh, Vancouver, by the way, uh, were uh, much higher in condo rentals, about $2,000, the average two-bedroom condo in Vancouver, 400 more in Toronto. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at several more as we go along. But coming right up, we will open up our phone lines on family law matters, divorce, custody, support, even the fight over the cat. And it does happen as Zuckerman Law Group returns to Vancouver Consumer right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to the program this soggy Saturday afternoon. It is 2.13. I'm Sterling Fox. It's always a pleasure to welcome these two guests to the program. They are Stuart Zuckerman, the founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, and Senior Counsel Ron Hunick. Gentlemen, a belated Happy New Year to you both. Good to see you again. Happy New Year. A pleasure to be here. Good to see you. Ron, when you uh, were here uh, a few months ago, we, uh, in the course of one of our conversations, I was asking about uh, the nature of the business, of family law business, and it was quite a simple question. I said, is it seasonal? Do you have peaks and valleys and so on in your year? And you said, no, it's pretty steady year long, but there's always a spike in January. Here we are. Are you going through that again? We're getting that spike just like every year. And I think what happens is, you know, relationships break down all year long, but if that's going to happen in November or December, most right-thinking people for for obvious reasons, we'll put that off until the new year, especially if their spouse doesn't really know what's coming, or at least they won't tell the kids. Mm. Uh, and we get that spike in January. It's it, it's it's almost immediate after the holiday ends and the kids are back at school. So it's predictable, Stuart, from year to year, almost. I, I think also a lot of people make New Year's resolutions if they've been unhappy in a relationship for a period of time. And uh, the new year comes along and people are talking about, I'm going to start going to the gym, I'm going to do this, I'm sure, do that. Yeah. One of those things is I'm, I'm going to get out of this relationship and move on or look for a new relationship. And so it seems to be in January we do get a, uh, a, a lot more people coming in wanting to initiate a divorce proceeding or a separation. Interesting. Now, you were going to remind us, you talked about this just before we turned on our microphones a few minutes ago. You have a, a list of dates uh, because here we are, again, with New Year's resolution season. We're all in January. We, we tend to be most aware of the calendar and do uh, you know deadlines those sorts of things yeah. time pressures yeah. and in family law there are indeed time pressures talk about that yeah so um you know the normal word for it is a deadline in law we call it a limitation uh, so there is a, a limitation act in british columbia that sets dates by which you have to bring certain actions if you want to sue somebody and in the family law act there are a number of limitations or deadlines so an example would be if you're with a spouse and you have a stepchild or you're you know one spouse has a child the other spouse is not the biological parent okay um and uh, uh you separate from that spouse you must apply if you want to apply for child support from that step parent you must do it within one year from the date of the last contribution that that parent made to that child. So if the stepfather has been contributing to the family expenses or to the expenses of the child for a a period of time and then you separate, if you wait more than a year after the separation from the last date that that stepfather contributed to the child's needs, then you're you're out of luck for asking for child support from that stepfather. It has to be done within a year of separation. Uh, 
so and it's important to know because typically two years is a is a number we're more familiar with in terms of deadlines. Yeah, isn't so it? like for injury claims, if you if yeah. you're injured in a car accident or you slip and fall in a restaurant or someplace, right. you've got two years from the date of experiencing that injury to bring a lawsuit. If you if you wait more than two years, you you cannot sue right. the person for that injury. And it's similar in family law in these various things I'm talking about. So the first one was child support for a stepchild. Okay, the more uh, common one that you need to worry about would be the deadline for applying for a division of family property or family debt or pension division uh, or spousal support. All of those things have the same deadline or limitation. And that is, if you were married, then you must apply for spousal support or family property division or pension within two years of the date of a divorce being granted. Okay. So if you go out and get a divorce that doesn't deal with any of the other issues between you, you have that two-year limit to apply to divide assets, to divide pensions, to, to apply for spousal support. If you're unmarried, if you're a common law spouse, that is, if you have lived in a spousal-like relationship for two years or more, okay. then from the date you separate, you have two years from that date of separation to bring a claim for division of assets, division of debts, pension division, or a spousal support. If you wait more than two years, you're out of luck under the uh, under the Family Law Act. Um, and uh, if you want to apply for uh, Canada pension plan uh, death benefits between former spouses, uh, you have to do that within three years of the death of uh, the former spouse or within four years from the date that the parties separate. Um, or you could do that with, by consent if you both agree to do it otherwise. Mm-hmm. But you've got those deadlines for a Canada pension plan. And uh, the other one that would be important is if an order has been made uh, in the uh, provincial court, uh, you've got 40 days from the date that order is made to apply. And And the last one would be if you're applying to set aside or to replace an order or an agreement that deals with either property division or spousal support, you have to do that no later than two years after the date the spouse first discovered or ought reasonably to have discovered the grounds for making that application. So what does happen sometimes is people separate, they enter into a written agreement called a separation agreement, yes, yeah. and it provides for a dollar amount of child support and mm-hmm. a dollar amount of spousal support. And usually that's based, for example, let's say it's based on the husband having an income of 80000 and the wife having an income of 30000 and they agreed on those numbers. Uh, a certain amount for child support, a certain amount for spousal support. And now... Time goes by, let's say three, four years go by, and then the wife discovers that the husband is not earning eighty thousand anymore. He's earning a hundred and ninety thousand. He never, he never told her that that income changed three years ago, or four years ago, or two years ago. So if she just discovered that change in income, uh, she's then that deadline would be extended. So because it's from the date that she ought reasonably to have known what his, what the change in circumstance was that would vary the agreement. Right, and if he was withholding the information, then it's uh, it's it's understandable. She didn't know. Whereas on the other hand, if he was giving his income tax return to her every year and she chose not to apply to vary that agreement for more than two years, then she'd have a great difficulty uh, applying for that variation. Interesting stuff. Now, Ron, there's another element to all of this that you and I were talking about briefly just again before we turn the mic. Sometimes, friends, the conversation begins before we actually hit the airwaves. And one of the things that just absolutely knocked me for a loop, Ron, when you were telling me about this, I did not know this. And I don't know how many people listening to the broadcast understand this in the case where a couple is separating and there are there's a house uh, involved and and all sorts of things one person is working the other person is for example a stay-at-home mom who doesn't have a, a independent access to uh, finances and yet it's time to end the relationship and and you know seek legal counsel and yet one person has lots of dough and really no problem getting a lawyer the other person has no money 
and yet knows what's coming and knows that that person is going to need a lawyer. In B.C., we now have made changes to family law that allow the person with no money to get some. How? Well, that's right. You know, it's a big difference over what the law used to be under the previous legislation, the Family Relations Act. We, we're now under the Family Law Act, and we've been under it uh, since March of 2013. And the Family Law Act has this special provision called Section 89. And under Section 89, you can, if a lawsuit has been commenced, uh, you as a party who doesn't have the wherewithal to, uh, uh, to come up with a retainer for your lawyer right. can apply to the court for an advance on family property. But the, the courts have fleshed this out and made it easier and easier and easier, not necessarily to qualify, because you've got to show that you anticipate needing legal fees in these amounts over the next uh, however many months and say, okay, my lawyers worked with me and estimated that I'm going to need $50,000. You can apply to court and say, here's my budget for uh, between now and trial or between now and whatever the step is. Um, my uh, husband has a uh, million dollars in equity in the house right. that is solely in his name, but he tells me uh, he's not going to mortgage that or do anything to assist me in right. paying for my legal fees. Well, he can apply to the court, and the court can make a variety of orders. For example, if uh, the other party has cash or something that's near cash, the court can simply order, you must pay over to the wife uh, X dollars. Alternatively, uh, if you're cash poor but asset rich, the court can say, you, husband, uh, or wife, as the case may be, whoever mm -hmm. has the property, sure. uh, must mortgage this property, raise $50,000, and provide that to the spouse who's making this application. It's actually fleshed out in a way that has really leveled the playing field. And that was the wording that was used in one of the key cases uh, uh, that the court determined some uh, several years ago. I happened to be acting on that case for the fellow who was resisting the application, and the lawyer for the wife argued, even though our application isn't perfect and hasn't set out all the details of uh, how she intends to fund uh, her legal case, and there is a uh, a marriage agreement that says uh, if we split up, the wife gets nothing. Even so, the court made an order hmm. and and uh, provided under that order that the wife would get a fifty thousand dollar advance. Now that's taken into account later on, but the point of of uh, this discussion is it is really intended to level the playing field. Absolutely, and of course there would be provisions, Stuart, that the fifty grand that the court ordered the 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 spouse with no loot to have available to retain a lawyer, that that, that person's not going to jump on a plane and buzz off for six months to Hawaii. Right. There are, there's a limitation uh, in that section that the advance that the court can order is only for the purposes of either paying legal fees, so your lawyer's fees and taxes and disbursements, uh, or for hiring an expert uh, to determine something like valuing a business or okay. valuing a property, sure. etc. But it's only for purposes of the litigation that the money can be used when an advance is ordered under Section 89. When did this law, when did these changes come in, guys? That was March of 2013, and it's still not well known I was just among the say, public. I was just going to say, now between the two of you, how many people, uh, how many, uh, what percentage of our audience listening to us right now know that this change has been made, and that for people who have no cash resources available to them in a in a, break in, a broken up relationship scenario, aren't 
on their own and just washed up on a beach somewhere. They have rights. It's it's a very small percentage, I think, of the population that's aware of that. Similarly, a small percentage of the population is aware that since 2013, that if you live with someone in a common law relationship for, a, if you're in a spousal-like relationship for two or more years, you have all the same rights and obligations and entitlements as a married couple would when they break up. So a lot of people think if they're living with somebody, first of all, some people think that that happens at six months, which is not the case. It's you got to be two years, two years. together. Okay. Uh, but secondly, and you have to be able to prove that too. And, and it, yes, and it's only since 2013 that common law spouses have had the same rights in terms of property division and debt division and pension division as married couples. Again, so 2013 was an epic year in family law in British Columbia. Yeah, it certainly was. 604-280-9898. Let's open up the phone lines here, Andrew. Free legal advice on a Saturday afternoon. Are you kidding me? From two of the best known. They're the uh, call us before your spouse does, guys. Yes, the Zuckerman people. 604-280-9898. Let's open up the phone lines for your calls and your questions of our family law lawyers as we uh, start off this new year. Uh, assets, uh, we're talking about uh, this earlier too, Ron. The, if, if the assets, when we're talking about division of property now, and if the property is all in a relationship, common law or otherwise, if the property for whatever reason is all in one person's name uh, rather than both names being on title, how does that complicate things when a relationship goes sideways? Well, ordinarily, that would only complicate things at the very beginning if the spouse who owns everything is trying to hide it or put it into somebody else's name. And the way we address that is if after interviewing the person who doesn't have any of the stuff right. uh, <clears throat> is concerned and has valid reasons for being concerned, like her ex said, if you leave me, I'll hide everything, for example, then we apply to court without even notifying the other side and get a temporary financial restraining order. And the courts always make those temporary because some people, well, they don't bring those applications when they ought to, and they ought to be set aside uh, uh, easily and quickly if they're really just meant to put somebody else's feet to the fire. But that's how we freeze things. And then after that, it really makes no particular difference uh, once things are frozen and identified uh, whose name the assets are in with one gloss. One gloss is this. Sometimes you have a scenario where from the very beginning, uh, uh, well, let's just call him husband. Uh, husband uh, had uh, a huge amount of assets and by the time the relationship breaks down, he still has those same assets and they've appreciated slightly in value, but not much. Right. He's going to argue that, and he's under the law, that, that he should have an exclusion of all those assets that he brought into the relationship. Now, the Family Law Act says that if there's been an increase in value of those assets between the time the relationship started or the marriage occurred and the time of the separation, then that increase in value is going to be divided equally. Divided by, by right. two. Right. Exactly. Okay. But sometimes you've got that same scenario. You've got the assets that haven't grown much at all, but it's a, it's a 30-year relationship. In cases like that, for example, uh, the wife is going to argue reapportionment. It's been a long relationship. Um, I know ordinarily he would have the exclusion, but court, please give me justice in the form uh, because it was a long relationship and, and I have no ability to support myself now. Right. Please give me uh, one half of or a portion of what would otherwise be excluded assets. And that is the strongest factor. There's others, of course. But and that's are they, the strongest uh, used, do they usually resonate well and is there usually some award? They do. What we're, what we're seeing these days on reapportionment is you've got to show you've got at least two bases in this case. That I, the scenario I gave you, it's a long marriage, and she has nothing at the end of it. Those, those would be two factors, right? Yeah. If you've got only one factor, 
um, it's a little harder right. to get uh, to get either access to what would otherwise have been excluded assets or to get more than half. Our and guests in studio, Stuart Zuckerman, founder, Ron Hunink, senior counsel, the Zuckerman Law Group, and your calls to 604-280-9898 begin with Tamara in North Vancouver right after this break. Welcome back to the program. It's 2.35. It's uh, kind of a soggy day, but uh, I think, or at least I'd like to think, he said, crossing his fingers and touching wood, that the worst is behind us. Uh, the lines are wide open to our guests from the Zuckerman Law Group, including founder Stuart Zuckerman and senior counsel Ron Hunink. The number is 604-280-9898. Tamara in North Vancouver has been waiting ever so patiently, forever and a day. We appreciate that, Tamara. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you. Uh, perhaps I'm not asking the right person, but I'll ask anyway. My girlfriend has been common law for over two years, and her common law husband owes a lot of money due to not being able to work with a heart condition, so he would like to declare bankruptcy. Is, is she responsible for his debt? Well, uh, debts in the name of the husband, if he declares bankruptcy and they are not separated... Uh, the debts would form a part of his estate with his bankruptcy trustee, and then his subsequent income would be applied on a monthly basis, a certain percentage of whatever income he has, would be applied to his creditors until he is discharged, typically nine months later. And the the wife in that case would bear no financial responsibility for the husband's debts while they are still together. On the other hand, if they separate under the Family Law Act, debts that have been accumulated during the relationship from the date of cohabitation or any increase in debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation are subject to a 50-50 split, just like assets are subject to a 50-50 split. So if the husband and wife were to separate prior to his declaring bankruptcy, he could claim, none of his creditors could make a claim against the wife, but he could claim against the wife that she's responsible for 50% of his debts. Yes. Well, thank you. That answers it. Does? Okay. As long as, yeah, as long as they're together, he's okay to declare bankruptcy. That's Thank correct. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. I appreciate your waiting to it to join us this afternoon, 604-280-9898. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the changes to family law that occurred in British Columbia in 2013. It was an epic year, and uh, many of us are still digesting a lot of that information, not the least of which this, uh, and it's not hardly a revelation because it's been on the books for so long, but nonetheless, this discussion today, Stuart, uh, at length that we're having about how the courts and, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, lawmakers have found their way to realizing that it's not always a level playing field when relationships break up, uh, but the people involved should, in the eyes of the law, have the same entitlements of law. Well, the law has all in family law has always been focused on fairness. That's always been one of the cornerstones of family law decisions. And unlike the common myths that people have that the law favors the woman over right. the man, uh, you, yes. that's never been the case. The law favors the you could argue the law protects the lower income earning spouse against the higher income earning spouse and ensures that when parties separate and they've had, especially when they've had a long relationship where they're economically dependent on each other right. and they're both accustomed to a certain um, lifestyle. So for example, let's say you have the husband earns 70000 a year and the wife earns 25000 a year. So they have a, a collective $100,000 income and they've lived for 10 years on that $100,000 income that enables them to go out to dinner four or five times a month that enables them to go on a vacation to Mexico once a year. Sure. And then they 
at the end of that 10 or 15 years, they separate. Now what happens? The, the husband who earns 75000 a year, he only suffers a small diminution in lifestyle because he was living on 100000 a year and he has to drop to seventy five. But the wife in that example who only earns 25000 a year, she's dropping from a 100000 a year lifestyle to a 25000 a year lifestyle. Sure. She can't afford to dine out even once a month compared to the husband who can still afford to dine out. So the idea of spousal support is to bring both parties' annual incomes closer to each other so they both suffer the same economic diminution in lifestyle or economic loss in lifestyle as each other. One person doesn't get very close to the poverty line while the other, pe- the higher income earner is earning a, a great living. So so the law has always been focused on on fairness. The, the, the big change in 2013, the, the biggest change is that prior to 2013, if you were a common law spouse, it was a much more costly and difficult exercise to get an interest in in your in the property owning spouse's assets. Right. That was a much more difficult test. Now it's automatic. That's, that's the, the common law changes uh, to the Family Law Act in BC are perhaps best known about and understood, Ron, compared to some of the other changes, not the least of which is this uh, revelation this afternoon about uh, people with with no money. There are ways the courts will assist them to at least stand up for themselves and be able to. Absolutely. The the changes that occurred bringing common law partnerships uh, under the same umbrella uh, were long overdue. In this province, of course, uh, it's over 50% of long-term relationships are uh, common law relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to leave all of those people out in the cold was, well, something that, that was crying out for a remedy. And in fact, the Law Reform Commission that was uh, dealing with that uh, had been wrestling with it for years before the legislation finally came out. So it's 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 a factor of how slowly legislation ultimately evolves. Uh, but now that we have it, now we need to have a bit of, bit more of a public relations campaign to let people know that they have rights. That's true. And, and again, uh, there's some, some eye-popping moments on this program already today. Let's go back to the phones. Peter's in Vancouver with a question for us. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon. Thank you, Thank you very much for taking my call. You're welcome. I'm calling regarding to separation. Mm-hmm. See, summary separation... And your spouse uh, uh, owing a tax previous year or future, you would be alive for or not? So uh, w- once again, similar to the uh, the call about bankruptcy, the the debts that either spouse owes on the date of separation, um, uh, if they've all accumulated during the marriage, then. Uh, each spouse on separation is responsible for 50% of the debt as between the spouses. So see if you let's say the husband owed CRA $30,000 in taxes on the date of separation, CRA could not could not sue the wife for that $30,000, but in the family law case as between the husband and the wife, the husband could say to the court I owe $30,000 in taxes. This was accumulated during our marriage. And so when we're dividing the equity in our house or dividing our bank accounts or RRSPs, my wife should have to pay me 15000 of that 30000 so that I can pay Revenue Canada the whole 30000 and that she pays half. So as between the spouses, yes, taxes incurred during the relationship or during the marriage are subject to a 50-50 split. How about after separation, prior to after separation, you still have to pay well, it. If- t- taxes that are accumulated post separation would generally not be divisible between the spouses. It's only the taxes due as of the date of separation that would normally be subject to a fifty-fifty split. Okay, what's that? Just uh, what's the difference between separation and divorce? Well, it's a big, 
a difference. Many people separate and don't get divorced for years or don't get divorced at all. The separation is the date uh, in in our law. The date of separation is the date that uh, the evidence convinces the court that the parties have uh, that a number of things have occurred. The parties are are not having uh, sexual relations with each other. That's just one factor, but that's not determinative. The fact that the parties are not cooking or cleaning or doing laundry for each other, uh, they're not taking their meals together, they're not representing to the public or to their family that they're still a couple, they're they're no longer exclusive, they're dating other people. All those factors can trigger the separation date, whereas the divorce only occurs when a court makes an order uh, declaring that the parties are no longer married. Okay, Peter? Okay. All right. Thanks very much for your call. Ron, a separation agreement, just to just to pick up on Peter's question, which was a good one, the the difference between a uh, separation and divorce. So you have separation agreements. People form those and sometimes they involve lawyers. Sometimes they get them online. Uh, Either way, which I strongly recommend people do not do. I've seen a lot of disasters from online agreements. I was hoping you would jump in with that. Uh, Do it yourself. The law is not a good place to be a DIY person. Building a fence in the backyard is a great place for a DIY person. How much clout does a separation agreement carry, Ron? Well, it has all the clout uh, necessary right up until the time uh, you challenge it. And I can honestly say that at one point uh, in my practice, I was probably earning about 40% of my fees on cases where people had done their own separation agreements uh, or, you know, who had uh, very poor uh, assistance from family friends who had gone through a divorce Mm -hmm. telling them, here's what you need to do. Right. Uh, And... (laughs) It's, it's so sad to me to know that these people paid me over those years tens of thousands uh, of dollars in legal fees to undo an error uh, that, uh, that ought never to have occurred. Right. They would have paid only a few thousand dollars to uh, have a lawyer, drawn up to have in a lawyer the first investigate place. properly. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, and it, and it, it used to be under the act, the Family Relations Act, before the, the current 2013 Family Law Act, under that act, you could go to court and set aside, the court could set aside or vary an agreement if the court merely found the agreement to be unfair, either unfair when it was entered into or unfair in how it operated. And there were a number of other common law bases of attacking agreements, such as undue influence or duress or a, a variety of misrepresentation, a whole bunch of things which still exist. Under the current act, they've made it harder to vary an agreement. So if you have a marriage agreement or a separation agreement, which has been prepared by a lawyer and both parties had independent legal advice. First of all, the presence of independent legal advice eliminates arguments, generally eliminates arguments about duress, undue influence, um, misrepresentation, because the both lawyers uh, explain to the parties right. all of their rights and they explain the meaning of the agreement to them and they investigate um, things about assets if the parties pay them to do that. Uh, so uh, those agreements are harder to challenge. Under the current act, an agreement has to be found to be substantially unfair before the court will vary agreement. So it has to be something more than just unfair. So And the, and as I said, if you both had lawyers present and you negotiated in good faith and you didn't, uh, n- uh, there's no non-disclosure of assets, it's very difficult for a judge to vary or overturn 
overturn an agreement under the current act, whereas it used to be commonplace for the courts to overturn those agreements. So I used to say to clients many years ago, well, these agreements, these separation agreements, they're good, or marriage agreements, they're good for, you know, three, five, seven years. But if you get into a longer term and circumstances change, people's incomes change, um, somebody gets sick medically, etc., there is lots of ways to go back to court and challenge the agreement. Now it's much more difficult to, to challenge an agreement or to vary an agreement after it's been executed, as long as lawyers were involved on both sides. And, both, and everyone was fully aware of what they were signing, and everyone has signed off on it. And, they, and each party made full and frank disclosure. That's also a cornerstone, that if somebody lied about their assets or their income when they entered into an agreement, that's a basis to challenge the agreement later. Okay, let's talk about another kind of agreement, Ron Hunink. Let's talk about prenuptial agreements uh, in terms of establishing parameters that a relationship sort of gets filled in inside. What's, what's the value of a prenuptial agreement, especially down the road? Well, the value of a prenuptial agreement to both parties, uh, if it's fair... Uh, substantially fair, and and if they had equal bargaining power uh, in terms of representation of uh, of their own lawyers at the time they negotiated it, the value of it is you know exactly what's going to happen if your relationship breaks down. Then your relationship is really only about love, mm-hmm. and it's not about money anymore. But what happens in in many cases is that the person with more assets gets a little greedy at the time that they're negotiating it, and. What is often missed is that if you're going to have a relationship uh, agreement, well, let's call it a marriage agreement, that is intended to govern what happens financially in your life for the next 10, 15, 20, uh, 25 years, it needs to take account of the fact that if there's one party who has a lot more assets and what, uh, and that party has a lot more income, they're going to have to, uh, these parties are going to have to comport uh, what the entitlement to the, uh, the the person with lesser assets is right. going to be when they split up. Uh, and, and it should be staged, something like 5, 10, 15, uh, 20 years, and the percentage should uh, increase. Now, that doesn't mean it has to get up to 50%, not at all. Right. But, but it nothing must, isn't acceptable nothing either. Nothing isn't acceptable. Right. And that's why that case on that Section 89, that got turfed early. That's right. A, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, again, uh, in terms of... Uh, a divorce, for example, when uh, there's a prenup already in position uh, and there's been some degree of civility involving the dissolution of the relationship, Stuart, so there's possibly even the beginnings of a separation agreement, how much, how, how, how much easier is the work for you. It's much easier when there's a prenup if it was a properly prepared and fair agreement. Um, And it's a a lot easier, a lot less expensive for the parties because typically you just follow the terms of the prenup or the marriage agreement as to how you're going to divide assets and how you're going to deal with spousal support um, if the parties come to a separation. And when I'm preparing prenuptial agreements or marriage agreements or cohabitation agreements for people who aren't going to marry, I very often recommend either a graduated interest in the equity, so if the, the that the the non-owning spouse, as the marriage becomes longer, when that gets to seven years, when it gets to ten years, or if they have children, that at at those stages, that their percentage increase in the in the increase in equity of the other spouse's property should increase sure. over time, and that prevents these challenges. And similarly, you can have a graduated spousal support. So a lot of people, when they first marry, say, "Look, if we separate in the next two years, I don't feel I should pay any spousal support to my spouse, and I want that in the agreement." and and that's fine, but if you say I'm, ne- 
never going to pay any spousal support ever, even if we have a 20-year marriage. And even if I'm earning 200000 a year and she's still earning 30000 a year, she's not going to get spousal support. That's going to be very difficult for the court to kind of swallow. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you put in a graduated spousal support formula that says, if my income is between this amount and this amount and, we, and our marriage lasts between this many months and this many months or this many years and this many years, then here's what her spousal support entitlement will be. So you can, you can create these formulas that create more fairness. And it's much harder for the court to challenge those agreements because it can't be said that the parties didn't turn their mind to these future circumstances and what would occur if they had children, what would occur if their incomes changed. If that's all addressed in the agreement, sure. then it's a much stronger agreement. And, and much easier to execute. Yes. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Stuart and Ron, great to see you both again. We're fresh out of time. I am grateful for yours, as always. You can uh, catch up to these people on their website, Zuckerman Law, Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, ZuckermanLaw.ca. The head office is uh, on 152nd Street in Surrey. They have offices in Yaletown as well. That's where you find Ron uh, most of his time. Uh, and uh, there's a, a large staff of uh, capable people ready to assist and call them before your spouse does. Stuart and Ron, thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always, gentlemen. Thanks for your calls, too. We're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman, founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, and Ron Hunick for another very helpful visit. Coming up after the news, we keep our phone lines wide open for your calls about cars to Vancouver-based automotive journalist Jeremy Cato. Time now for Ask Andrew. And this hour, we ask Andrew about a new green hydrogen plant with a new investor. What's the story? So hydrogen is being thought of as one of the fuels of the future. You can use it to power trucks, cars, planes, probably anything you can really think of. But one of the big drawbacks is that it's not that green to create. So uh, Macquarie Capital, one of the big capital companies here in Canada, has put $200 million into a, into a brand new green hydrogen plant to be set up in my old stomping ground of Chetwynd, B.C. Uh, they're going to be partnering with uh, Fortis B.C. is in on this and uh, RH2C, which is another co- uh, uh, energy corporation. Uh, they're also going to be setting up a wind farm. Aeolus Wind is going to be setting up uh, its wind farm to power the hydrogen plant. Interesting. Uh, so there's a lot of money going into this now, and I think you're going to start to see in the next you know, maybe five to ten years a lot more of these hydrogen plants come into use as hydrogen is one of the safer and cleaner alternatives because when you burn hydrogen in a vehicle, and Jeremy, our next guest, might be able to talk about this, mm-hmm. uh, the emissions from hydrogen are water. That's right. That's it. It just water drips out the tailpipe and, and, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're off driving. So I think you're going to see a lot more of this coming up. But yeah, this is in partnership with Fortis BC. So Fortis BC as well now is looking into hydrogen as a possible energy source in the future. All right. And it's all about Chetwind to get the ball rolling at all places. (laughs) Interesting stuff. Thank you, Andrew. TransLink says smart lockers are coming to three SkyTrain stations along Vancouver's Expo line. Says Pigeon Box has won the 2019 open call for innovation on customers services and amenities with its proposal for lockers that can receive and safely store customers online purchases so beginning this spring users can sign up through the pigeon box website or app and then can have deliveries sent to lockers at joyce collingwood stadium chinatown or commercial broadway skytrain stations customers can then use the pigeon box address as their mailing address they'll be sent a smart locker number and access code when the item is delivered allowing the safe retrieval of packages that will no longer be left unguarded at the front door of your house. TransLink says the initiative is a one-year pilot to test the demand for smart locker services on the transit system. 
Looks like a winner to me. Global News to Three is coming up next, and then we'll talk cars with veteran Globe and Mail journalist, Vancouver-based Jeremy Cato is coming up next on Vancouver Consumer. Stay with us. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.